the lags of monetary policy tightening might be a lot shorter. And if that's the outlook that they have embedded, one view is that it implies we hold rates for longer, but it also might imply that the Fed is worried that activity might strengthen again. And so there's the risk of holding, holding higher for longer, but that activity could resurface. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the FX Factor podcast. I'm your host, Pippin Rye. And with me today, I've got a very special guest making his debut on the podcast, uh, Ali Jaffrey, who is a senior economist here at CIBC. Ali, welcome to the show. we got a lot to talk about. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. I mean, look, we had several central banks reporting last week, obviously updating statements and their decisions. I guess the overarching theme is fairly consistent. I mean, most of them, uh, you can make the possible exception of the ECB, is now in the sort of data dependency mode where everything's taken on a meeting by meeting basis. And, you know, the Fed is obviously at the forefront of everything. I mean, what's your read on the Fed right now, where they're at and where they could be in a couple of months from now? Yeah, I think the Fed is a very interesting meeting with the Fed. Uh, there's three key points to the last FOMC decision. The first is their choice to hold. I think that was an important dovish signal, that they're pleased with the progress they've had on inflation and so forth. So I think that's quite important. The second is obviously the set, uh, how the outlook changed and where the dots move. So they're quite concerned about the U.S. outlook. They've significantly upgraded it. And that requires more monetary policy tightening. Whether that transpires or not is dependent on that outlook. Uh, that was my read from Chairman Powell. But then the last point that I take from that is the press conference and the tone that Powell brought with him. And it was a lot less committal, I would say, to the policy path outlined in the SEP. And the key word of that press conference to me was caution. He said multiple times that we're going to proceed with caution. So two dovish signals I take from that and one more hawkish signal, which is a SEP. That hawkish signal is quite interesting because it's a dramatic change in view for the Fed or the outlook. The listeners might know that the Fed revised its unemployment rate outlook from about 4.5% at the end of 2024 and 2025 to about 4.1%, which is just above the natural rate of unemployment that the Fed estimates and other people largely agree with. So they're not expecting a substantial deterioration in the outlook. So that brings me to kind of the big risk that the Fed might have in their mind is that the lags of monetary policy tightening might be a lot shorter. And if that's the outlook that they have embedded, one view is that it implies we hold rates for longer. But it also might imply that the Fed is worried that activity might strengthen again. And so there's the risk of holding holding higher for longer, but that activity could resurface. And that they might act again as well, implicitly in that. But that's not our view. And I think that's not the market's view yet either. But they're clearly signaled that that's a big risk they're worried about. Yeah. So we talked uh, a little bit immediately after the release about the fact that, you know, if you look, if you take stock of everything, and I, I think you highlighted this a little bit, you consider the statement, you look at what's being projected uh, with respect to the unemployment rate, inflation, growth forecast, and the dots and the way they're shifting. There's a bit of an inconsistency there, right? I mean, what's your read on that inconsistency? Why is it there? And how would you interpret that for our audience? So first off, the FOMC is you know, a dog's breakfast of different views. So almost always there's an inherent inconsistency. And Powell is really good about downplaying that. Uh, and that's my main takeaway about it, that, and, and as Powell said that, uh, you know, this is not a plan. But also I look at the dispersion of the dots, particularly on the Fed funds rate, as signaling that they're unsure about the future. So I try not to look into it too much, 
And it also raises questions for me about how much this is actually going to play out, whether there's some tactical element in this as well, whether they're trying to ensure that financial conditions don't ease too quickly, even though they might not be planning to hold as long or as high or to raise rates further. So I think there's some tactical considerations and uncertainty underlying that uh, inconsistency. So, I mean, if we look at the dots, if we take them at face value, the Fed uh, seems to think that there's one more left for this year. Uh, our call is that there's not. Can you explain why we differ from the Fed and you know, what are the risks to that view? So I think the Fed has a 12 to 7 majority in favor of another hike this year, which is not an insignificant, you know, that's, that's a majority clearly. It's not overwhelming, but it's not on the knife edge either. But Powell said in the press conference that they want to see more than three months of good data. And my sense is that we will likely see that on inflation and labor, which is why we maintain our view that the Fed won't won't proceed. So he essentially left the door open to either possibilities. It probably would have signaled too dovish of a move to remove it. And I think that's a fairly appropriate bar for them to set, that they want more than just three months. And also underlying the inflation picture for the Fed is what's causing inflation to come around target or actually slightly below. And the prevailing view is, uh, or at least by commentators and, and different decomposition of inflation, that it reflects supply factors dissipating and not demand. Demand is obviously quite strong. So the durability of that supply side easing and its impact on inflation is a big question mark for the Fed. They don't want to plant the flag not knowing how much more there is to run on that. And so inflation could come back again. My sense is that there is more to run on the supply side that'll help keep inflation around target, even though demand is quite strong. And that should keep it at a range where it's prudent for them to hold rather than hike. Right. So if we, like us as market participants, and we're looking at, you know, we're trying to suss out what the Fed is going to watch in order to get that sort of real-time approximation of how, you know, we're seeing the supply side evolve through the different and changing dynamics. What are the indicators that you think the Fed is, is eyeing? Is it really just developments in the labor market, maybe a, a decline in job vacancies? I know, you know, you take a different uh, view with respect to vacancies uh, as to most, uh, most of us here. But what indicators should we be looking at if we want to really get a safe yeah. feel for that as the Fed does? That's a great question. So there are two broad sets of integrators we should be looking at. One is the goods market, product market, and then obviously the labor market. So we'll start with the goods market. The indicator that I look at the most is the New York Fed's measure of supply chain disruption. And that has obviously eased substantially as in negative territory, uh, suggesting that the supply chain disruptions have mostly healed from a global perspective. And then more subsector indications like the Mannheim used car index, to see whether that used car prices are stretched or not. And then different decompositions of inflation in terms of demand and supply that look at the change in prices and quantities. That's very helpful on the good side. And that's very important because we saw most of the increase in the run-up in inflation initially was because of the good sector. On the labor market, uh, looking at job vacancies is one of the measures. And as you mentioned, I'm concerned that it doesn't tell the full story because The structure of hiring has changed over the last decade, and particularly post-pandemic. It's much cheaper to post a job vacancy. On LinkedIn, Uh, for example, yeah. Exactly, right? So whether or not the level of vacancies is consistent with 2% inflation is always difficult to suss out. But nonetheless, it's one indicator. The one I put the most weight on is the part rate. There are people coming back into the labor force. Right. That's the biggest measure of, of kind of supply in the economy the amount of average hours worked. So 
from a classical you know macro point of view, the total hours worked, which is the product of the number of people working and the average hours that they're working, gives us a sense of you know what's the labor supply from a rough point of view. But underlying the number of people working is who's participating in the labor force. And that had, hasn't fully recovered to its pre-pandemic. We wouldn't expect it to go back though, because of population aging, that should trend down. But we've seen a very significant run-up in the part rate over the last year. It's slow, but it's still moving in that in that direction. In fact, we recently had a 0.2 percentage point print in the part rate, which that's not a fast-moving indicator. Yeah. So I put a lot of weight on the part rate first, mm-hmm. and then vacancies um, second. And for our listeners, part rate, you mean participation rate of the labor force, correct? That's right. Okay, cool. excellent. So, I mean, another key ingredient of this that I want to get your thoughts on, and, you know, everyone seems to be talking about this with the UAW uh, worker strike in the United States, is wages. How do you see the wage picture evolving from here? And can you comment a little bit on what's going on with respect to the UAW strike and whether you see that as a permanent issue for the labor market in, in the United States and whether or not the Fed's going to react to a, a prolonged strike? That's a great question. So starting with wages, so we've seen some really encouraging wage data in the U.S. The United States obviously has very rich wage data that adjusts for the change in industries. Um, so the employment compensation index is what I place the most weight on because Chairman Powell has said that repeatedly. And that has seen a significant easing in the last few quarters, which is very important. And we would expect wages to moderate going forward because we've seen excess demand in the labor market coming down, but at a fairly gradual pace. So that's the underlying view of, of wages. It should, it should slowly come down, but there are risks to this view. You know, the first is that, you know, wages are relatively sticky and there's a concept economists call downward nominal rigidity. So, you know, when the economy slows, there's a reluctance obviously to cut wages and firms just fire people or adjust their hours. Right. So wages adjust in a slow fashion, but also uh, workers look at past inflation when they try to bid up their wages, and obviously past inflation has been quite high. Mm. So there are forces that will probably cause this adjustment in wage growth to be possibly slower, and that could be slower than the Fed likes. So those are some important risks to the wage outlook, even though the economy is moderating, moving in the right direction. Now, with respect to the UAW strike, this will be important to wages to some degree, Auto workers are not the majority of the labor force, but what they get in this negotiation will likely be a benchmark for suppliers and people who are connected to the auto industry. Now, for the economy as a whole, we think that it would be a modest impact if it's a, if the strike lasts about four weeks to five weeks, like, like some of the historical episodes in the past. That, you know, For each week of the strike, it could shave off you know, about 0.1 percentage points of, uh, of annualized GDP. That's not a lot, okay. but if that stretches out for quite a while, that could be important. And that impact could be nonlinear, as you say, mm-hmm. meaning that as it goes on, that might not just be a 0.1. Yeah. That could be a 0.2, a 0.3, because you can think of knockoff effects to suppliers mm-hmm. and their suppliers and their workers. And so even though it's the auto sector, auto production is only around 3% of GDP, it may be connected to sectors that account for a larger pool of GDP and employment. So the risks to that depend entirely on how long it, how long it lasts. But right now, our base case view is that it doesn't last too long. We're almost nearing in at the two-week period. As we get to three weeks and as we get to four, then I think the risks become much higher. 
Yeah. So let's, I mean, let's talk about the auto sector in the United States and in North America in general. Like we know it's, it's 3% of uh, U.S. output, as you mentioned, but there are also heavy linkages across the border to Southern Ontario. I mean, when, did, when do we start seeing signs of pain in the Canadian auto sector if we see a prolonged sort of strike in the United States? I think it could be pretty quick. You know, it could be within a quarter, maybe two quarters, a prolonged strike. Because as you mentioned, there's significant interlinkages between these firms. There's a lot of cross-border trade. You know, there's inputs that come across the border and go, go back and forth. So these disruptions could show up, uh, I think, quite quickly. You know, we don't have the rich micro data to assess that impact. Uh, and the speed. So that's a bit of speculation on my part. But yep. knowing how well integrated these are, uh, you're already seeing in the U.S. suppliers that are not related to UAW shutting down. Yeah. Um, so I think that it might be wishful thinking to think Canada is isolated from this in, in a prolonged strike scenario. Okay, so on balance, when it comes to the Federal Reserve, uh, we've got them on hold and, uh, until the end of this year. For 2024, um, what are you expecting? I mean, we are looking for rate cuts, uh, but what's the narrative there? How, What should we expect in December 2024 for the Fed funds rate? So we think that it's going to come down by, I think, around 125 basis points from what we have now. However, the Fed is saying quite clearly that they don't believe that. Right. And again, it could be tactical considerations, but... Mm-hmm. If there are upside risks to growth, then there would certainly be upside risks to our outlook on rates as well, I think. Um, So that's a call that we made earlier in September. Mm -hmm. And then we've had some important data that's shown that the economy is more resilient. We'll get also the personal income report this week. Yep. Uh, That'll give us a pretty good view on consumption in Q3. Now, there could be a temporary snag with all these things, with auto strikes, the government shutdown, and student loan repayments. But... My sense is that there are plausible upside risks to mm-hmm. our call, you know, and we'll revisit that as we get the data and assess uh, and assess the outlook, and as also as the inflation outlook evolves, you know, right. given that complicated supply and demand story right. that we talked about earlier. So there you have it. I mean, lots to take away here, lots to unpack. Uh, certainly, when it comes to the UAW strike in the near term, we'll have to keep tabs on how long that extends for, to what degree that could uh, hamper things north of the border as well. And judging by you know what Ali has told us, there is some considerable upside risk to U.S. data going forward, and that really does dovetail with our view that the U.S. dollar could remain strong into year end and potentially carry that strength into the first uh, uh, quarter of next year. So that, that that's going to be some something that we're going to be watching as well. Ali, we'd love to have you back uh, again at some point in the future to talk uh, not just the U.S., but also Canada as well. So we'll have you back at the next Bank of Canada meeting. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. Thank you all for joining us. Until uh, next time. Cheers. The information and data contained here and has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets and to the extent that such information and data is based on sources outside CIBC Capital Markets, we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc. and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand. Products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial
Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. For more information about these legal entities and about the products and services offered by CIBC Capital Markets, please visit www.cibccm.com. Speakers on this podcast are not research analysts, and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets, Inc. research department, nor should it be construed as a research report. Speakers on this podcast do not have any actual implied or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned. The commentary and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individuals, except where the speaker expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Speakers may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to these instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets, Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice.